Well, let's turn this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. We looked these uh, couple of Sundays prior to Christmas into chapter 1 and, and saw in very vivid terms the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This vision that John had uh, in heaven of Jesus with the veil removed in the fullness of his glory and as best as John could with the words that were available to him, Try to describe for us the glorious nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, who even now stands, or is seated rather, at the right hand of the Father. But then when you get into chapters 2 and 3, which we're looking at these next couple of months, we see that Jesus doesn't just sit at the right hand of the Father, but he's actively involved in the life of of the church, and not just the church collectively as a whole throughout the world, though he is involved in the working of the church throughout the world, but Jesus is involved in individual churches, in local congregations. He's at work. And so these couple of chapters here in Revelation are letters that John writes from the mouth of Jesus to the churches, seven churches specifically. I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like if Jesus wrote a letter to our church. If Jesus said, John, I want you to pen this letter for me and send it to those folks in Pilot Mountain at Simmons Grove Baptist Church. Here's what I have to say to them. What can you imagine that he would say? What do you hope he would say? What do you hope he might leave out? Well, in a sense, he has written us a letter. He's written us seven letters. Because these churches here that are written to in the book of Revelation are churches that were literal historic churches that existed in the first century. But they represent all kinds of churches that have existed throughout church history and, and even exist today. When you read of the things that he writes to these churches and his description of these churches, we see that there are churches just like these churches all throughout the world. And so we're going to look at all seven of these in the next, well, seven Sundays, Lord willing. Today we consider Jesus' words through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 in chapter 2, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and we talked about that word angel a couple of weeks ago. The word angelos can be translated angel and refer to those heavenly beings that we think of when we hear the word angel. But it literally is translated messenger. And so while he says write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, what he's probably referring to is a, a leader, a key leader or the pastor of the church in Ephesus because they're the ones who would deliver this message, this letter to the church. And so he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. Now, Ephesus was probably the most uh, privileged, you could say, of all the churches in the first century. You think of Ephesus and, man, they had the Apostle Paul. He spent more time there uh, probably than any other church that 
uh, that he preached at, he, he preached for over three years, five days a week, uh, to a crowd of people in Ephesus. I mean, they had the privilege of having the Apostle Paul that long. And then when Paul was gone, he left somebody behind or sent someone to take his stead and to minister to the church at Ephesus. Who was it? Somebody knows their Bible. Come on. Timothy. Thank you, Calvin. I appreciate that. He left Timothy behind in Ephesus to minister to him. So, you know, if you can't have Paul or Paul can't stay all this time, at least you leave Paul's protege, right? His right-hand man to come and minister to you and to be a pastor in your city. They had the, the eloquent, eloquent preaching of Apollos. And they even had the Apostle John for a time to preach there. So they had all kinds of uh, resource and, and preaching and teaching and privilege when it comes to the, uh, the quality of the church and the, the opportunity to be taught. And if they were privileged to benefit from the best preaching, the best teaching in their day, really how blessed and how privileged are we in the day that we live in 21st century America with our printed Bibles? Now listen, that seems so common to us. That seems so ordinary. You think, what's the big deal about a printed Bible? I've got 17 on my bookshelf now. You know, one for each occasion, a holiday, a birthday. You've got Bibles all over the place. But do you realize what kind of treasure this is that we have? That for the majority of church history, Christians had to gather together because maybe only one person had a copy of the Bible and maybe not even the whole Bible. And they had to listen to it read. And that was all the scripture they got. We have our printed Bibles. We have our Bible apps. We have access to preaching. If you don't like your preacher, you can go listen to another one on Monday on the Internet. You have preaching and teaching all around. We have an embarrassment of Christian resources. We talked about this Wednesday night about how many Bible studies and, and curriculums and devotional books we have access to. So many we could never read them all. But Ephesus in their day was probably the most privileged of all the churches when you look at the, the resources and the teaching that they experienced. But the letter begins, like any good letter, with a description of who the sender is. Here he says, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of of the seven golden lampstands. Now, if John showed up with this writing and they would have read the first chapter first, so they've read this description of Jesus and at the beginning of every letter to these churches, with the exception of one, he refers back to that description of who he is in chapter one. You see, everything that Jesus has to say to us, every instruction that Jesus gives for his church is rooted, it's grounded in his character, his very nature as God. And so he wants them to know this about himself, that he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. You know that he's the one who holds you in his right hand, the one who has his grip on you, from whom no one can pluck you. You can never be lost if you're in his hand. He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He moves about in the midst of his churches. He is here. He is with us. He is present in our midst. 
The church isn't this building, but it is the congregation of people who possess the very spirit of Christ within them, the spirit of God. He is with us at all times and he's at all times moving in the midst of his churches. You are his and he is in charge of his church. The question that we should ask is what does Jesus say to the church? The question we should ask is, what does Jesus want for our church? You see, it's a new year and pastors and and church leaders across the nation are coming up with strategies and and, uh, plans for the whole year and, and, and visions to present to the church so that they can go forward and conquer their community and redeem the culture and all this good stuff. That's fine in its place. But what really matters is not what the pastor thinks we ought to do or what the congregation thinks we ought to do, but what is it that Jesus wants for his church? What is it that Jesus wants for Simmons Grove as he moves in our midst? No one else's opinion matters, not mine, not yours, only Jesus's. So we see this commendation that he gives to the church at Ephesus. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, You cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, have persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Man, that's good stuff. Good on you, Ephesus. You're killing it. You're doing a great job. I mean, these these are good things. I mean, we would hope that Jesus would say these things about our church. I know your works, your labor, your patience. I see how hard you're working. What an encouragement that it would be that he noticed. And he does. Let me encourage you with this. Whatever work you do for the Lord, no matter how big or how small it may seem to you, Jesus sees it. He takes notice of you. He knows what you're putting in and where your heart is. He he says you cannot bear those who are evil. Now specifically, they, they... had to put up with the Nicolaitans. Verse 6 says, you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Apparently, these these guys were uh, bringing sexual immorality into the church. They posed as, as teachers and apostles, but they came in and just brought sin with them. And surely, Jesus would be able to say of our church that we stand against sin and against evil, especially sexual immorality. We look at the world and all that's going on around us with what we call the the sexual revolution. And we resist that. We resist homosexuality and transgenderism and and all the sins of that nature. And surely Jesus would take note of that. He He would commend us for that. He says, you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. They stood up against the false teachers. Irenaeus wrote early in church history that he thought that maybe these Nicolaitans came from Nicholas, one of the early deacons in the church who had professed to be a believer, but proved out to be a false convert and a false teacher. And maybe that's the case. But regardless, Ephesus had been faithful to fight against false doctrine. Surely he would say that about Simmons Grove, that you you love the word of God, you hate false teaching, you stand against those who would preach lies. Amen. We stand on the word of God. We want to know what is true and we don't want to receive those things. We have no tolerance for false teaching and teachers. Jesus commends that. 
In verse 3, he tells them, you stuck it out for the long haul. It's the Jacob Hall paraphrase. You have persevered and have patience. You've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Friends, I hope that he'd be able to say that if he were to write a letter to Simmons Grove. You've been patient. You've labored. You've endured. You didn't grow weary. You stood up for my name's sake. Don't you want to hear that from him? Absolutely. And praise God should he see that. Man, we would be thrilled to receive a letter from Jesus and for him to say these words to us. Wouldn't we? We may labor, defend, persevere just the same. If only that were the end of the letter. If only that's where it ended. Good job, guys. Keep it up. See you in heaven. Love Jesus. But he doesn't stop with the commendation. He, he gives an indictment. Verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Imagine hearing this read for the first time. Hey guys, we've heard from the Apostle John. He says he's had this crazy vision of heaven and Jesus and, and that Jesus has some words for us and I've got it here, let's read it. And the, 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 the messenger, the pastor stands up and begins to read and, and he reads that first part about how they've labored and they've worked and man, they would have been so encouraged. But then as he's reading, he, he pauses his face turns a little pale. He hesitates before moving on. And with a quieter, trembling voice, he reads the word of Jesus to your congregation. But I have something against you. That's heavy. To have Jesus the one who died for you, the one you've been working for for all these years, laboring tirelessly for his name's sake. And in his letter to you, he says this, but I have something against you. Friends, the same message is fitting for Simmons Grove Baptist Church today. Don't take this lightly. Don't skim over this because it's familiar. I, I, I mean, I've been with you for eight years, roughly, in total. And I've seen your work. I've seen your love for the community. I've seen your faithfulness, your generosity. Y'all have been at it for a long time. And I say, praise God for that. But if Jesus had something against you, wouldn't you want to know what it is? Here's what he says to Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
you have left your first love. Working hard, but neglecting the one for whom we work. Defending the truth, but ignoring our relationship with the one who says, I am the truth. Standing up for righteousness, but not resting in the one who is the very standard and source of our righteousness. Labor, listen, labor is no substitute for love. Labor is no substitute for love. Try it with your wife. Actually, don't. Work hard. Provide for your family. Do all the right things. But not invest in the relationship. Not sustain the love. That doesn't work, does it? It doesn't. The word left that John writes here, that Jesus gives, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It's an intense verb that actually has reference to divorce. When Jesus says, you've done all these things in my name and on my behalf, but you've left your first love. Saying you're treating me like we're not even together. What does it matter what you do for the Lord if you're not walking with the Lord? Henry Blackaby used to say, God is pursuing a love relationship with his people. And that's true. God is pursuing a love relationship with his people. That is the first and number one priority. If your love relationship with Jesus is right, then your obedience will be right. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do you know if you've left your first love? Answer, if you're working and doing things for Christ, but you're not pursuing a love relationship with Christ. So ask the Spirit to search your heart. Where do you stand? Here's, I think, two key indicators about where you stand in your love relationship with Christ. They have to do with the Word and with prayer. Do you come to the Word of God to know and hear from God? When you come to your Bible and you you read the Word of God, are you merely studying, are you merely learning, are you merely reading your Sunday school lesson or preparing to teach or getting ready for a group? Or when you come to your Bible and you read the Word of God, do you come to know God and to hear from Him? Do you love the Word? And part of the the, the proof that you love the Word is that you gather regularly when the Word is preached. 
And then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, you find times in your day to spend in the Word, to read it, to listen to it. Do you hunger after the Word? Psalm 1 says that the man who lives a blessed life is the one who delights himself in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. As it relates to prayer, do you pray to commune with or to have friendship with God? Do you pray only for the list of things that you need answers to? Or do you pray to spend time with the Savior you love? You see, the tricky thing is that we can read our Bible plan and we can pray our prayer list and, and think that we're doing this. We can go through the outward motions of doing the right thing, but our hearts be far from God. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So where do you stand? Are you going through motions? Are you just doing what you're doing because it's what you're supposed to do? Or do you love Jesus and you want to spend time with him? Corporate application to this about prayer, I can really see and you can really judge uh, a church's corporate view of prayer don't get angry with me for this, but how well the prayer meeting is attended. I mean, churches all across the country have just dropped prayer meetings altogether. And the ones that do have them, you know what? It's usually the least attended service of the week. Because we don't value that time in prayer with God. Oh, I can pray at home. Yes, you can. But God gave you a church too. And you read the book of Acts and how the church functioned. Every time you see a prayer, you know who it was? Most of the time it wasn't just one person. It was the church gathered together to pray, to seek the face of God and his blessing. What does Jesus have to say to a church that has left its first love? Let me give you three things. Verse 5, number 1, remember from where you've fallen. Remember from where you've fallen. He says just that. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I remember as a kid, we, didn't, we went to the beach, you know, about every year, but I never have been one just to, like, play in the ocean. Um, I know what lives in there, and I just don't like that. But one year, apparently, I got brave, and... Me and my brother went out and uh, having a time, and my parents, you know, stay right here in front of us. Okay, well, after a while, you lose track of time, you lose track of your parents. And it wasn't long, I see my dad approaching, and he says, do you realize where you are? In the ocean, Dad. <laughs> Look, where's your mom? And he points back at the beach. And where at one point she was straight ahead of us, now she's way, way down there. You've experienced that. You get caught up in the moment of what you're doing, of the activity. You lose track of where you are in relation to the shore. And that's what happens in our relationship with God. 
So a point needs to, needs to happen. You need to have a realization where you realize where you are. I hope that God shows you where you are because I don't know. I can't see your hearts. God, show us where we stand. Show us how far we've drifted. Show us where we've fallen from. Remember a time in your life when you were intimately in communion with God, when you fellowshiped with him day after day and you came to him to pray, not just to tell him what you needed and what you wanted, but to tell him you loved him and how great he is and how much you needed him. A time when you hungered for the word of God and you feasted on the words of God, not because you had to teach or not because you had to lead a group or not because you had to uh, read something your teacher told you to read, but you went to the word of God because you wanted to hear from God. Go back and remember that time of your life. But don't just remember it. Number two, repent and do the first works. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Repent. Recognize how far you've come. Fall down on your knees and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I need you. God, I want to get back to where I was before. I want to get even closer to you than I've ever been. Repent. Confess it as sin. And do the first works. What does that look like in a marriage? And you come to a point and you say, man, what's, what's happened to us? You know, we, we used to be really close and I feel like we're drifting apart. What do you do? That's usually the first thing people do besides show up home with flowers. Reinstitute date night, right? That's a big deal. You need date night. You need time alone. You need time away from everybody else. Some time to feel that nearness again. Friends, if you realize that you've drifted from God, that you've left your first love, remember from where you've fallen and then do something about it. Repent. Make time to be with Him. Make time for the Word and prayer, even if it doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. Even if you have to pry your eyeballs open at 5.30 in the morning. Even if you've got to stay up after everybody else goes to bed, whatever you have to do, if you have to skip a meal in the middle of the day just to have some time with God, do it. Do the first works. Just the basic, simple things. Come to church. Hey, it's a new year. It's a good time to start fresh. If you haven't been consistent in your attendance on Sundays, get consistent. Decide right now, I'm doing the first works. If you haven't been reading your Bible, trying to spend time with God, you're doing it this week. You're starting today. Get alone. Time with God. Just you and Him. And then thirdly, recognize the danger of staying like you are. Remember where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. Recognize the danger of staying like you are. He says this in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else. Or else what? Or else I will come to you quickly, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Labor is no substitution for love. And know this, loveless churches always 
die. Loveless churches always die. It's that serious. I remember hearing a, a seminary professor tell a story uh, a few years ago uh, about a vacation he had went on with his uh, family and he had teenage sons who were at an age where they were starting to test to see what they could say to their mom and get away with it. And uh, one was being particularly disrespectful during breakfast at a restaurant and he said, you're walking outside with me right now. They walked outside, it was the middle of the summer, 90 degrees outside in the morning. And he sat in their van, he said, get in, sit down, shut the door, he didn't crank it up, didn't turn the air conditioning on, he's sitting there in this van, they're sweating bullets, staring his son in the eye. And he said, the only reason you talk to my wife that way, your mom that way, is because you don't think I'll kill you. Maybe that's not the best parenting, okay? I'll leave that up to y'all. It's a funny story, but we don't take warnings like this near seriously enough. You think Jesus was just throwing words around when he said, unless you repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place? See, a lampstand isn't the light, is it? The lampstand just holds the light. Jesus is the light. And you know what? Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't need me. Jesus does not need Simmons Grove. He loves you. He wants to use you. He wants to bless you. He wants to reach this community through you. But this warning is serious. He said, unless you repent, I'll come remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus' light, it will always shine. But it might not be through us unless we repent. If we go on in our working, if we go on in our labor, and y'all are a hard-working bunch, don't get me wrong, if we go on in our labor, our working, without being renewed in our love for Christ. Listen, I mean this. Jesus means this. If you go on working, if I go on working without being renewed in our love for Christ, Simmons Grove Baptist Church will eventually die. That is God's word. Because it is love that carries us. It is love for Christ through which he works. It is love that he's shown us and that he demands in return. Hear what the Spirit is saying. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I've prayed this morning, I've prayed all week, that the Spirit would speak to our church. We may hear the truth that where we have lost our way and our love, that He would renew us, that we would repent, and do the first works, See, there's a promise of hope. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. God loves each and every one of you. 
God loves this church. And if you continue in love, if you renew your love day by day throughout the rest of your life, you have hope of a reward with him. His blessing in this life and the next. His blessing on our church now and the promise of eternity with him. Because you see, here's the thing. If you don't love the Lord and you go on in unrepentant sin, you know what you're showing? You've probably never really loved him at all. And you need to be saved. Friends, we all drift. Being renewed in our love for Christ is something we all need at all times. Will you repent? Do the first works. And let him renew your hearts. I think we need to spend some time in prayer this morning, don't you? Bow your heads with me. I pray that the Holy Spirit would, even now, open your eyes and mine to where we really stand with Him. And right where you are this morning, can respond in one of two or three ways. You can stiffen your neck and resist. I hope that you wouldn't do that. You could say, yeah, yeah, that's right. I've, I've, I've probably left my first love. I'm not where I used to be or where I ought to be. You know, I really need to try harder. Can I tell you, that's not really the right response either. Because you're trying harder will just be more labor without love. But we need to respond this morning by humbling ourselves before God, confessing our weakness and our lovelessness, and asking God to renew our hearts, asking God to rekindle our love for him. Ask him to do it now. Our Father, we need you. These are hard words, but they're words we need to hear. Help us, Lord, to remember from where we've fallen. Grant us repentance that we may do the first works. Help us to recognize the danger of staying where we are. Renew us in our love. 
in Jesus' name.